As April said, we've been going through the book of Proverbs, sort of been contrasting the, uh, the way of folly with the, the way of wisdom, and sort of looking at that, I and mean, we jumping around through different things, and, and uh, we'll be doing that again today, looking at uh, wisdom's way with work. Last week was wisdom's way with wine, or alcohol in general. Uh, today, again, like I said, wisdom's way with work, and next week will be wisdom's way with uh, wealth. Um, but I, what I want to do is just jump right in, and, uh, but before we do that, let's uh, go ahead and pray. Would you bow with me? Jesus, we just uh, recognize that right now um, you are the king and you are on the throne, and um, Lord, we just want to recognize that, um, we just want to recognize your place. We want to recognize ours as well, and the fact that you call us to allegiance, the, the fact that you call us to give you everything and to serve you as our king. And this morning, we're going to be looking at some of that. Um, and, and Jesus, I just pray that uh, our hearts would be stirred up to, to live more like that. Our lives completely and totally and absolutely just given over to you, our king. Thank you for the kind of king that you are. And you're a loving king. And you're a just king. And you want what's good for us. And that we can, we can trust you. Thank you, Lord, that you stand in contrast to the rulers of the world. You are the one and the only, the one true king. And Jesus, we, we love you. And we're with you this morning. We're in your presence. Make us mindful of that. Speak to our hearts. Help us to understand what you are calling us to. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, pop quiz. How many hours, you can call out if you know the answer, how many hours, I just want a couple suggestions, how many hours do you think the average person spends in their lifetime at work? Any suggestions? Whole life. How many total hours at work does the average person spend at work? Any guesses? Just throw something out. What's that, Kyle? Kyle's bid is 100,000. Does anyone want to meet that or beat that? One dollar, nice. <laughs> 50,000? Anybody else? Is anyone doing the math real quick in their heads right now? My head would explode if I would do that. I just need to Google stuff. I can't think it through. Apparently, according to the people that know, I don't know who these people are, I don't know who these people are that count this kind of stuff, but the, the number is, a, is approximately 90,000 hours. Kyle, you were just 10 grand off. It's pretty, pretty impressive. What's that? Yeah, you overworked on that answer. <laughs> yeah, about 90,000 hours we spend in our lifetime at work. That's about a third of our lives. It's a huge part of our lives. And because work is such a huge part of our lives, maybe that's one of the reasons why that when we meet someone for the first time, what's the first thing that comes up? Hey, what do you do? Yeah. It's one of the first things that we ask. It's a pretty standard opening in a conversation. And one of these days, I, 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 wanna just, I just want to mess with someone. And, and when they ask me that question, which is always predictable when, when they ask you for the first time, I just want to say something like, what do I do? I'll tell you what I do. I get the party started. <laughs> it, according to April, right? <laughs> but of course, if you know me at all, as April already said... It's probably the last thing that I would be known for, and it's the last thing that I do. I might close out the party, 
but I definitely don't get it started. And I don't, I don't close it out in the way you might think, but it's usually picking up trash. But, um, but it's, it's usually a question I, I tend to try to avoid. And what I try to do, because of my, the nature of my work, because being a pastor isn't the most awesome thing in most people's minds, I usually try to push the conversation, or at least push that question as far down the road as possible before I get asked that fateful question. Hey, what do you do? And I, I get all kinds of responses from people, uh, and it, it always... It's always awkward. Sometimes the, the responses are positive. A lot of times they're not so positive, but 100% of the time it's awkward. And, um, and, and that, that's even though if they even understand what a pastor is and if they know what a pastor is. A common question or a common response, I get, so are you like a priest? And then they look down at my hand and they see that I have a wedding ring on or I might be with my wife at the time. So then they're you know, thoroughly confused. I remember one time I met someone and, and uh, we were talking and she would ultimately become my landlord uh, and uh, we were trying to schmooze her and lay it on thick so we could get the place and we got it, which was awesome. But anyway, we were getting to know one another and she said, so what do you do? And I said, oh, I'm a pastor. And she says, oh. And she paused and she looked at me and she says, so you make milk? I'm like, no, I don't make milk. Uh, I'm kind of like a priest, and so I went down that road. <laughs> and then I was like, but you're married. And it's like, okay, I've had this conversation before. But uh, yeah, I get all kinds of uh, reactions, and, and it's not always something that uh, is fun to talk about, because sometimes people shut down completely. And there, there was one time I was at a party at my neighbor's backyard, and and I was, there's a bunch of new people there that I hadn't met yet. And I knew about half the people in the backyard. And, and the same kind of thing, like, how can I, as, you know, as far as I can, how, how far can I take this without bringing that up? Because it's usually a conversation killer. But um, someone walked in who, someone walked in the backyard, the backyard who knew me. And they have a little bit of an issue with me uh, because we've, you know, they're, 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 they're th ideas about God are not the same as mine, let's say. And uh, he quickly announced, oh, there he is. There's the pastor. <laughs> and then I heard, you know, people you know, murmuring across the yard about pastor, church, God, all this kinds of stuff. But have you ever noticed when we talk about what we do, we tend to dress it up. We tend to try to, try, you know, make it sound more important than it really is and make it all fancy. And we give ourselves fancy titles. You ever notice how that happens? Especially in the tech world, that's incredibly common. Um, and um, we try to sort of enhance the public perception of, of what we do so that we can feel important, significant. Um, and I got a few examples for you here. Um, apparently, there's a job called an innovation evangelist. If, if you work, oh, some people are nodding. So you've heard of that. Great. I've never heard of that before. I didn't hear about that until I Googled it. Um, and speaking of Google it, Googling it, that's actually at Google. They have a job called Innovation Evangelist. Here's another one from Google, which is interesting. Security Princess. <laughs> it was that person's job. I'm like, okay, what is that? I got to find out what that is. The Security Princess, it was her job to try to break the Chrome browser. That was, that was her job. Um, then we got AOL. Remember AOL? It actually still exists. Did anyone know that? I didn't know that. 
There's a role there called digital prophet. I think that's what we were called when we were doing online church. Microsoft has an innovation Sherpa, not to be confused with Google's innovation evangelist, which is a very different role, but Microsoft has an innovation Sherpa. Charles, where are you? Is that true? You don't know? Sorry for confusing you with someone that works at Microsoft. He actually does. He actually does. And then this one was my favorite. Also at Microsoft, Galactic Viceroy of Research Excellence. Galactic Viceroy of Research Excellence. I mean, why be known as a researcher when you can be the Galactic Viceroy of Research Excellence, right? So no doubt with these roles, there's an attempt at humor, there's an attempt to be funny and lighthearted and all that kind of stuff. But I also think this has to do with our desire to feel like what we do has meaning and purpose. And we want to be important and we want to know that what we do actually matters. How should we view our work and its significance? As followers of Jesus, how does our work matter to God? How does God matter to our work? And what does the Bible say about work? And I think as followers of Jesus, it's incumbent upon us to figure that out, to answer some of these questions, because the more that we understand these things, the more we'll be able to walk in wisdom's way with regards to work. And rather than just talking about wisdom's way with work this morning, I thought I would take a slightly different approach, and I thought I would flip it around a little bit and use the way of folly, looking at it from a foolish perspective, using the way of folly to draw our attention to the way of wisdom, using the way of folly to draw our attention to the way of wisdom. So there are three foolish ways that I would like to present to you that we can uh, relate to work. The first foolish way that we can relate to work is to reject it. So, of course, I'm talking about laziness and a refusal to work. The Bible, and Proverbs in particular, has plenty to say about work. And it's interesting that in Proverbs, the majority of the Proverbs, of the verses that speak about work, speak about it from this perspective, from this angle at speaking to and addressing the issue of laziness or what is commonly referred to as in Proverbs as the way of the sluggard. And I've got several passages here that I want to share with you. Proverbs 10, 26. I'm not sure if it's going to be on the screen, um, but I'll read them out to you. You're not going to be able to follow me, so just try to listen. Proverbs 10, 26. Like vinegar to the teeth... And smoke to the eyes. In other words, a really good thing. It's a really great experience, right? But like vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes, so is the sluggard to those who send him. Proverbs 13, 4. The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. Proverbs 18, 9. Whoever is slack in his work is a brother to him who destroys. Proverbs 20, verse 4. The sluggard does not plow in the autumn. He will seek at harvest and have nothing. Proverbs 24, uh, verse 13. Love not sleep lest you come to poverty. Open your eyes and you will have plenty of bread. Proverbs 21, verse 25 through 26. The desire of the sluggard kills him. For his hands refuse to labor. All day long he craves and craves, but the righteous gives and does not hold back. 
And then lastly, Proverbs 24, verse 30 through 34. I passed by the field of a sluggard, by the vineyard of a man lacking sense. Interesting connection. And behold, it was all overgrown with thorns. No surprise there. The ground was covered with nettles, and its stone wall was broken down. And then I saw and considered it. I looked, and I received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber, and want like an armed man. Are we picking up on the theme here of what Proverbs says? Why does Proverbs make such a big deal about laziness and the rejection of work? Why do you think that is? The big deal is that laziness, and this is what we have to understand, laziness distorts God's design for humankind, specifically that we work. So we often think that the concept of work is something that is bolted onto our lives. But no, it goes much deeper than that. Proverbs addresses laziness because laziness distorts God's design for humankind. The Apostle Paul, who wrote uh, a good chunk of the New Testament and planted churches everywhere he went and preached everywhere he went, has a, had a strong work ethic. And he called upon others to follow his example. And this is what he had to say to uh, the Thessalonian church, 2 Thessalonians in chap, uh, chapter 3. For you, for you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us. Because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. So laziness is the rejection of work and a failure to see work as God gave it to us as good and godly, something a follower of Jesus should care about, right? We should care about God's perspective of work and the fact that he gave it to us. But you might ask, isn't work a result of the fall? Sin came into the world. God cursed the ground, kicked them out of the garden and said, from now on, you're gonna labor and toil by the sweat of your brow. Isn't that where work comes in? Isn't work part of the curse? But the reality is that God gave work even before sin entered in the world. Let's, let's see this here. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden. That's in the beginning. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So even in paradise, work was part of God's plan. And the fall didn't introduce the concept of work but it definitely changed the nature of our work. The next chapter, we see a little bit about what that would look like. Genesis 3, starting at verse 17. Cursed is the ground because of you. This is because of 
of sin because they, uh, the sin came into the world. They, they disobeyed God. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So God gave work. God gave work. But sin distorted it like sin does. God is a worker. Think about it. He created everything. That's work. Hebrews 1, verse 10. You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Okay, so cool. God is a worker. But not only is God a worker, but he made us in his image. So in our work, Get this, in our work, we reflect God. God is a worker, made us in his image. In our work, we reflect God. So how is that for bringing meaning and purpose into your life? I think it's important to know that though our job is work, our work is not limited to our job. Meaning when you come home from your job, at whatever quitting time is quitting time for you, your work is not over because our work is more than nine to five, the way that we are employed. If you find yourself in a financial position where uh, you're able to retire, or for most people in this room, are able to retire early, I got news for you. Your work is not over because the point of your work is about much more than making sure your needs are met. If, if work is a good and a godly thing and given to us as a gift by God and our bills are now taken care of, then we can stop working, right? No, it's part of how God designed us to flourish. So the point of work is not to make enough money so that we can eventually do nothing. More on that later. So if you're a stay-at-home parent, because it's not just about how we are employed, if you're a stay-at-home parent, you're not employed anywhere, but you definitely still work. And you know that as well as I do. And your work is never over. And I want you to know that it definitely matters. It matters to your children. It matters to society. It matters to your family. And it matters to God. And as a parent, there's no one else who's responsible for your kids like you are. And God has given them to you to raise them up to know and to love him. And that responsibility belongs to no one else, not even the church. Sometimes that happens. People farm out the discipleship process of their children to the church. It's not the church's job. That's the parent's job. And as the family of God, we can come alongside that but that primary responsibility has been given to the parents. And as parents get older and as children get older and as children grow into adults, the nature of the work of being a parent of adult children changes. It takes on, it shifts. And it takes on a new, uh, it just looks differently. New responsibilities. You relate to your children in different ways. So our work is not just our jobs or what we're paid to do, 
This is our work. It's utilizing and investing our unique skills, gifts, and talents in all the opportunities that God has given us and in the particular roles and contexts where he has placed us. That is our work. Let me say that again. This is work. It's utilizing and investing our unique skills, gifts, and talents in all the opportunities God has given us and in the particular roles and contexts that he has placed us. That's what our work is. Work is a gift from God. It's to be embraced as a stewardship from God. And in our work, we reflect God. And so our work and how we work absolutely matters to God. So the first foolish way we relate to work is to reject it. And it's foolish because work is good and godly. It might be crystal clear in our minds that we're not supposed to reject it, but we also have to be careful about how we embrace it because sin distorts what is good and godly. That's what sin does. That's the work of sin. That's the purpose of sin, to provide a distortion and a counterfeit of something that is good and godly. So if we don't reject it, yeah, cool, I got that, Lorenzo. I got that all taken care of. I'm a hard worker. Well, then I would say let's be careful about how we embrace it which brings me to the next point. The second foolish way we can relate to our work is to make it ultimate. When work is ultimate, it becomes idolatrous. It's when we live for our work and our dedication to the daily grind is our offering to a false God that we give misguided servitude to. When work is ultimate, we may try to find our identity in it, we may use it to try to manipulate how people view us, right? Think sort of like a, a curated Instagram deal, right? We may seek, I'm not ripping on Instagram, by the way, for the, just for the record. We may seek personal significance and validation by being successful, like look at me, look what I can do. It's about making money to support our preferred lifestyle, not making ends meet to live, but the pursuit of wealth to support our preferred lifestyle. When we, when we work in a way that makes it ultimate, there's never, in time, there's never time to enjoy the blessings of God in our life. So that could affect our families. That could affect other relationships. That could affect creation, just getting out of the house or getting out of the office. When work is ultimate, there's never time to enjoy the blessings of God in our life. When you think about the ways that God blesses us, and often when we think about God's blessing, we think about really big things like, oh, I'm so blessed to you know, be a part of this family and to have the wife that I have and have the kids that I have, and I'm so thankful for this and that. And, but I think sometimes we miss the simpler things that are still very much blessings from God and given to us by the hand of God. But when work is ultimate, and we have a very one-dimensional life in that sense, those are the things we miss because we're always running everywhere all the time, always doing something. We, we literally never stop to smell the roses. If work is ultimate, we might find ourselves constantly switching jobs because we're always chasing after something. 
Here's a thought. This one might sting a little. That's my little disclaimer. When work is ultimate, it can determine, and by that I mean work, work can, can determine what city we live in. I'm talking about when we move to a new city, but not out of a sense of God calling us to that new city to serve him or to represent him, but purely because that is where the next professional opportunity is. Now, in L.A., that, that's potentially a lot of us. So we have to think through and consider what are we being led by? Our professional aspirations or by God calling us to a particular context to serve him? Now, I'm not saying that moving to a new city should never involve a new job or that it can't involve a new job because, of course, it can. But as followers of Jesus, that just can't be the only reason. Who and what are we serving? Who and what are we following? Imagine if the opposite were true. And uh, imagine if we actually turned down professional opportunities in another city because there's more of a sense that following Jesus for us means staying where we are even when it's not professionally advantageous. We tend to allow our professional lives to occupy the place of the first domino, the catalyst that sets off a chain reaction that everything else follows. For some of us, our careers drive everything, and when that happens, when that's descriptive of our lives, then it's quite possible that our work has become ultimate. We also make work ultimate when we don't rest, or we won't rest. We already looked at how work is a good and godly thing, but so is rest. Don't forget, God rested on the seventh day. And if we have a godly view of work, we will work and we will rest. Exodus 20. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. So we must balance our work with rhythms of rest. Notice that it's not supposed to be a 50-50 split. But because we spend most of our time working, according to God's design, six days on, one day off, and experientially, that's just our lives, right? 90,000 hours of our lifetime is spent working. Because we spend the, most of our time working, we need times of rest. So we relate to work in foolish ways when we reject it and when we make it ultimate. And lastly, the third point I'd like to make is that we relate to work in foolish ways when we waste it. And when I say waste it, what I'm talking about is when we do it purely for ourselves instead of serving God or others with our work. Serving only ourselves in our work is the way of folly. So this would involve personal pursuits of, of really any kind. An, obvi an obvious example is the personal pursuit of wealth doing that through our work, which we're going to be talking about 
more next week, so I won't steal any of Ryan's thunder there. But our work should serve and benefit others and be a blessing in some way to society at large. When we think about what we do and the, and, and the type of work we are involved in, if we are careful and we pay attention, we can draw, uh, uh, we, can, we can see a link between the work that we do and how it benefits society in some way. But a lot of times we waste work because we only relate to work in the way that it affects just us. We only think of it that way. Martin Luther, the reformer, he said this, when we do the work that God has given us, we have become God's hands for providing for the world. When we do the work that God has given us, we have become God's hands for providing for the world. It's interesting to think of what God could do on his own and what he could have done on his own. But instead, he chooses to accomplish things through our work, right? Why didn't, he just, why didn't he just keep up with the manna thing, right? The food just comes, floating down from heaven. That's not how he set it up. He did that for a very short time in human history. He could have done it that way, but he chooses to use our work as a means to provide for us. Interesting place that our work has within his plan. Luther again. Our works, I love this, our works are God's masks behind which he remains hidden. Although he does all things, sorry, read that wrong, wrong inflection. Let me start over. <laughs> our works are God's masks behind which he remains hidden, although he does all things. There, was that better? He could give you corn and fruit without your plowing and planting, but that is not his will. Neither is it his will that your plowing and planting should produce corn and fruit, but you must plow and plant and say a blessing on your work and pray, now help, O God. Give us now corn and fruit, dear Lord, for plowing and planting will not yield us anything. It is thy gift." So we should see our work as a way to serve others, a way to benefit others and serve society as a whole. But when we think of our work as serving others and serving God, right? Because if it's not for us, it's for others and for God. Sometimes we think, well, you know, I'm not a missionary and I'm not a pastor, so does my work really matter to God? Am I really serving God? Well, first, let me point out, the first thing that's wrong with that thought is that you are a missionary, right? Some nods are, some heads are nodding. Nice. Let's do it like the wave. Let's get the heads nodding all the way across. We are missionaries. What have we done? What have we done with missionary work? We've recategorized it as something that somebody does who really loves Jesus and is willing to sacrifice everything that has to cross an ocean and live among people that speak a different language. That's the only thing that qualifies as missionary work. Obviously, I'm uh, saying it bluntly um, and sort of like saying it simply, but 
to a lesser degree, we understand and, and see ourselves as missionaries, yet that should not be so. We should be crystal clear that we are missionaries right where we are. So if you were going to use that logic, first of all, you're a missionary. But, but, let, me, but let me say this. Whatever your work, whatever it is that you do, whatever your calling, it is just significant as any formal ministry job. You, you, you can't view your work as less significant to God and mattering less to God because you don't have a formal ministry job. Whatever you do, it matters to God and should be for God. Luther, one last time. There has been a fiction by which the Pope, bishops, priests, and monks are called the spiritual estate. Princes, lords, and artisans, and peasants are the temporal estate. This is an artful lie and hypocritical invention, but let no one be made afraid by it for that, uh, and that for this reason, that all Christians are truly of the spiritual state and there is no difference among them. Your work matters to God. You work for God. You do God's work. And our work is not separate from following Jesus. Colossians chapter three. I love this verse. It's actually two of them here. Whatever you do, so maybe that's school teacher, designer, lawyer, barista, whatever. Whatever you do, work heartily. That means out of your soul. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. It's like, whoa, whoa, whoa no. Like, I, I work for men, though. I, I don't work for the Lord. I have this job over here that I consider secular. No, no, there's no distinction, right? Whatever you do, work heart of, heartily out of your soul as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that, for, that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. And when Paul wrote this, believe me, he was not talking to pastors or church planters or anything close to that. So, when we do all that we do, when we work heartily as for the Lord, that's how our work becomes worship. Because it's for him. The way we do it and for whom we do it. That's how our work becomes worship. We worship Jesus through our work because our entire lives are to be lived for him. That includes our work. And because of who he is, we worship him. And because of the work he accomplished for us, we worship him and live lives of worship to him. John 4, in verse 34, Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Speaking of the Father. Jesus was sent by the Father and had a mission and a purpose and the good news is, is that we are beneficiaries of that work. He described it this way in John 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they, or we, may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life 
for the sheep. So how would he give us abundant life? By conquering death. He died for our sins and he rose again and the resurrection proves that he was able to conquer sin and death. And what he said was true, that he was the way, the truth, and the life. And now the life that we have, we live for him. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The Apostle Paul encouraged the church in Philippi with this. And it's as true for them as it is for us. Or sorry, as true for us as it was for them. Philippians chapter one, verse six. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Again, that's as true for us as it was for them. That he who began a good work in you, in you, in you, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. So he's not done working on us and is going to continue to work through us. Aren't you glad to know that Jesus is presently working in your life? That he knows you? He knows the details of your life? And that the fact that he knows us doesn't result in his utter rejection of us when we place our faith in him? When we place our faith in him, he adopts us into his family and we are dearly loved children. How amazing is it that he would continue to work in our lives? That he wouldn't say, no, you work first and figure it out and then we can talk. No, no, no. He's like, there's a work that I want to do in you, and I'm not done yet, and I'm going to continue to do it because I love you. I've got plans for you. I have a purpose for your life. And he wants us to be a blessing to others. So he brings meaning and purpose to every aspect of our lives. Contrary to what we might think, we don't need to be galactic viceroys of research excellence to have meaningful work, to find meaning and purpose. Nothing we do could ever have more meaning and significance than what we do for Jesus. I wanna close with a poem written by a man by the name of C.T. Studd. He was a, a British missionary in the late 1800s and the early 1900s to China, Uh, the Congo as well, and and, and also India. And this is, I just want you to just, if you have to, just close your eyes and meditate on this and let it sink in. These words are uh, heavy and true. This is what the poem says. Two little lines I heard one day traveling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart and from my mind would not depart. Only one life twill soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Soon will its fleeting hours be done. 
than in that day my Lord to meet and stand before his judgment seat. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Give me, Father, a purpose deep in joy or sorrow thy word to keep. Faithful and true, whate'er the strife, pleasing thee in my daily life. Only one life twill soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Oh, let my love with fervor burn, and from the world now let me turn. Living for thee and thee alone, bringing thee pleasure on thy throne. Only one life twill soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one, Now let me say, thy will be done. And when at last I'll hear the call, I'll know, I'll say, t'was worth it all. Only one life, t'will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Let's pray.